Hello. Mr. Rubenstein. Grand tourist calling. What a nice surprise. How are you? Just kidding. I knew you were coming. Oh, no. <laughs> hey, welcome. Come in. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. As you've probably guessed by now, welcome to a very special episode of The Grand Tourist. But before I explain what's going on, a bit of housekeeping. This will be the last show of the season, but we'll be back in just about a month with a whole new collection of episodes and even more surprises. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein in the meantime, and sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. While most of my guests chat with me from many miles away, on today's episode, I decided to make a house call, and I came with my appetite for knowledge and dinner. My gracious host is someone I've admired for years in the New York design scene, and through his brand apparatus, he's elevated the minimal chandelier or horsehair sconce into an ultra-covetable object. What he started a little over 10 years ago with his co-founder, Jeremy Anderson, is now more akin to a luxury brand than, dare we call it, a lighting company. And with his ultra-glamorous and retro-fabulous spaces, think Halston meets Piero Portalupi, he turned the humdrum showroom into a talked-about spectacle. At times, it seems like whatever this man touches turns into design gold. Gabriel Hendafar. The products by Apparatus are another entry in the history of post-millennial American design that come from a long line of talents who have used these sculptural objects as fashionable statements, like the sofa was in the 70s and 80s. I remember seeing Gabriel's first ever collection and was immediately taken aback, not just by the works themselves, nostalgic, glamorous, precise, and sometimes otherworldly, but by the beautiful crowd that surrounded them. And the parties. We'll get to those, and anyone who knows Apparatus has made a Herculean effort to not miss a single one. Just last year, they turned their palatial showroom in Manhattan's Garment District into a jazz club, and for multiple nights had an Emmy-nominated jazz band perform live. Who does that? And who can pull that off? A major fashion brand would, or just, Apparatus. Since it began, the brand has expanded beyond lighting to furniture as well, and their showrooms have opened in cities around the globe. Their latest is about to debut in London's exclusive Mayfair neighborhood. More on that later. Now about that house call and our episode today. One of Gabriel's latest initiatives is the very opposite of a grandiose party. Instead, it's called Eight at Eight. It's just that, eight incredible guests having dinner in a small dining room at a showroom, which he rightfully calls a gallery, that has mirrored walls and a tablescape that's a work of art itself. So for the season finale, Gabriel invited me to his incredible downtown apartment for a more intimate version of Eight at Eight microphones included, where I would get to ask all the questions I want while being fed a fantastic meal by Chef Lauren Gary, where each meal would correspond to a phase in Gabriel's life. So grab a glass of wine or pull your souffle out of the oven for this discussion about how this American phenom got started, a story about Gabriel's first love and first clubbing experience in New York, why he believes he's going through what he calls a midlife epiphany, and some beautifully designed ASMR. So, Gabriel, yes. thank you so much for doing this. I'm really happy to be here. This is the first time we've I've ever done something like this on The Grand Tourist, which is a meal in your lovely home um, to explore the amazing world that is uh, Gabriel Hendafar of Apparatus. So just a note to the listeners how this is going to go. Hi, listeners. Hi. <laughs> 
the Grand Tourist makes house calls, which <laughs> yes. is very exciting. Um, we are going to be doing a personalized guided tour of your life, in a sense, through some courses. Oh, and man. so we've decided to kind of kick things off with some tea and a couple of dates. Yeah. And um, some hot dates. And some Turkish delight. And um, obviously, you know, your beautiful home here is in the neighborhood of NoHo in in, uh, in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit about uh, the amazing Lauren that's going to be cooking for us today. Oh boy, it's like this is your life except with food. This is going to be really fun. It is. Um, Lauren is, among all of the amazing things she is, my favorite thing about her is that she's my friend and that I get to spend time with her. And, and she's really amused in so many ways and is a dancer and an artist and an incredible chef and... Um, I have the good fortune of being able to call upon her to create these culinary experiences for the studio. She's our mm. our chef in residence, um, really creating food for all of the events we do. And specifically, we created a dinner series um, in collaboration with her called Eight at Eight, where we have eight people for dinner at eight o'clock. Um, and you know, we've we've created this fantasy of a dining room that is meant to really encourage kind of intimate personal conversation and create the feeling kind of that you're in the department store after it's closed and you're kind of in on a secret. So, you know, we invite our, our guests, which is, which is a really small intimate group for the size of the studio to have an experience in a jewel box inside of a much larger space. Um, so it's been really fun to create those menus with her and to really imagine what the fantasy of that dining room experience should be. It's kind of like we get to play restaurant. It's one of the costumes we try on. And, you know, for those who are listening, um, I want to hear in your own words, like, what is apparatus? If you meet someone at oh a dinner party, dinner party and they're like, what... What is this? What is what is apparatus? How do you how do you describe yourself? Um, I mean the the maybe most understandable answer to that question is we are a design studio that explores lighting and furniture and objects, and we um, explore them in spaces that we design. Um, and maybe the more abs, depending on who I'm having the conversation with. Um, you know, the the more sort of abstract emotional response to that, which feels the most resonant for me, is that apparatus is a platform from which to explore the way design helps to shape human experience and can, um, you know, help us to realize the full potential of various kinds of experiences and to really delve into uh, emotion as it relates to objects and meaning and that's probably where the person I'm talking to would turn away and go get a drink. Right. <laughs> um, and you're a tea drinker, I'm assuming. We're, we're having some lovely cardamom tea. I am a tea drinker. This is actually um, a tea that is very traditional Persian cardamom tea um, that was always present in in the house I grew up in and in every house I visited that was um, related uh yeah and pre-dinner post-dinner all like literally anything wrong with you anytime you're thirsty always tea oh okay that's how we're starting and for this sort of eight at eight is this the the dinner the dinner series uh name name drop for me like who are some of the people that would show up at eight at eight oh man um justin vivian bond has been a guest solange knowles has been a guest um We've had Noemi Bonazzi, who's a dear friend and a set designer, has been a guest. Um, it's really about 
kind of connecting people that we're inspired by who we think should know each other and and who will have some um some sort of creative synergy so it's it's pretty wide ranging and and of course my favorite thing is when you have a guest who has a friend in town and who can't come unless they bring their friend and you know all of a sudden you're surprised by this amazing person who you would never have thought would be there and it's kind of those connections of community that I think are, are, are most exciting in that kind of discovery. And so, uh, why, why, I mean, why you've got a big, co- how many people work at apparatus now? Uh, we're, I think 108, 110 people oh now. God. Yeah. It's wow. a, it's, it's a, it's a machine. Wow. It really and, is a machine. And you're about 10 years old. The company We is. are. Yeah. About 10 years old. Okay. Yeah. And so you've got a hundred people. Mm-hmm. I'm sure, you know, in any environment, when you got a business that size, you've got to be, you know, really super busy, really focusing on things, you know, why put that much energy and effort into, t- you know, t- something like that? What what does it do for you? What it, or I mean, what it does for from, me. Aside from getting invited onto really amazing podcasts. Sure, which sure. We didn't really, <clears throat> we didn't really think about <laughs> why dates uh, on the table, you know, how we're supposed to eat them with the pit and everything. But you know what? It's it. This is art. You will often, and often I'm willing to be to... offered a platter of dates with your tea mm. if you're if you're coming over to my Persian grandmother's house. Mm. So, and then when you're when you're mm, yum, <laughs> and then when you're done with the date, you put mm. the pit on the on the plate. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> really this good. is the grand tourist after all. We are we are. Oh we my are god! International traveling now. We are traveling through food, mm-hmm. which is. Listen, Stanley Tucci is not doing his searching for Italy anymore. Oh, um, because I think CNN is not going to do another season. Although they might do it with somebody else. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm, I've always wanted to do a reboot of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Well, and here we <laughs> here we are eating dates and drinking tea. To answer your question, the why, you know, the way the way I approach creating work for the studio is that. I'm often trying to define the mood of an experience and imagine that experience as part of a world. And then the exercise of designing the things become um, becomes about what are the things that we need to tell that story and to create that experience. And so ultimately, all of the pieces are in service of the moment where we actually step into the fantasy and experience what it feels like to sit at this table under this light reflected in this mirror with these people. So, it, you know, it's really in a way designing a set for the drama of human experience. And so the parties, the dinners, everything that we do that is about bringing people together to experience things together, um, those are the ways that I feel the most connected to the work. It's really ultimately the point. Before we return to Gabriel, a word from our sponsor, Lumens. We're living in a golden age of design where architects, interior designers, and estates have access to nearly every brand in the world. As this magazine veteran knows all too well, a trusted source is essential to any successful design story. That's where Lumens comes in. As the preeminent destination for a grand tourist-worthy lighting, furniture, and accessories, Lumens carries designs from more than 350 global brands. With in-house service and account specialists that are your personal connection to good design, Lumens curates authentic designs that run the gamut from iconic pieces to of-the-moment exclusives by designers fans of this podcast will certainly recognize, like Piero Lissoni, Philippe Stark, and Patrizia Urquiola. 
And if you're like the Grand Tourist, or especially Gabriel Hendafar, you're definitely one to make sure any dining situation is immaculate in all directions around you, from the lighting and tabletop to the seating and scents. That's why when you're planning an incredible dining experience, make sure you visit lumens.com to see what's available. The site carries all sorts of objets for the dining room, from storage to accessories. Just shop by room and you're all set. One of my go-tos is literally anything from Italo, especially their vases by Oliver Alto. I love it in a dark gray. It's definitely a subtle signal that even while you might be ordering in the finest salsiccia pizza for two, your table is appropriately mid-century accented. To set the table in all directions, visit lumens.com. That's L-U-M-E-N-S dot com. Um, oh, oh, wait. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Here is Lauren with the first course. Hi, Lauren. Come on in. Hi. Hi. Hey there. Ooh, this oh, looks amazing. Oh, boy, 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 boy. This looks both healthy and also really delicious which mm. is uh, a rarity. Lauren, come on, slide in and, and tell Hi. us what we're what we're eating here. <laughs> so, for the first course, Gabriel asked me to remake a scent nostalgia experience of having his grandmother cook this very very specific Persian dish. And I basically took all of my favorite components of mm. everything and deconstructed it. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a beautiful jasmine crispy rice that has turmeric and uh, a little bit of sugar to give it that wonderful caramelization. Mm. And then the stew is made up of beans and all of these herbs that are actually sauteed. So cooked down, it's parsley and cilantro and scallion and garlic. And I brightened it up a little bit by having the beef, which is a very slow roasted short rib. And that's on top um, with the beans that have been cooked separately. And then a beautiful broth of both dried lime and kefir lime, which is not traditional, but offers really nice balance. And then it's topped with sunflower shoots and some freshly squeezed Meyer lemon. <laughs> so you get all the crispy and the melty. And instead of having, you know, a, a sloppy kind of home style stew, we have a beautifully composed dish here of like mm. all the best, mm -hmm. just the crispy rice. Okay. <laughs> so you get the best part of the crispy rice. Yeah. Um, it's all crispy rice. And then this really, really incredible the perfume is unbelievable i mean the entire apartment is filled with it's, it right now yeah it's pretty magical you describe the dish because like the quintessential flavors are fenugreek yeah and, let's you know. yeah we'll get into talking about yeah well let's let's just sort of we we chose this beautiful dish which yes. is like a, a stew and a crispy rice mm -hmm. and this sort of brings us to um your your early life and your heritage yeah, and childhood. and your childhood what is the what is your where did you grow up first of all uh i grew up in los angeles and we're in los angeles i grew up in hancock park which sounds a lot fancier than than it was and sort of the part of hancock park that wasn't um about you know kind of rolling estates um and my parents left iran in 1979 in as uh, during the the Islamic Revolution and came to the United States really with nothing. Um, what did and, your parents do uh, in Iran? Uh, they uh, were very, very did nothing. They were, I mean, they were married so young, you oh, know, okay. so there, there wasn't really like, there weren't careers. Right. Um, How and, young were they? 
Uh, I think they were in their early 20s. Oh, wow. Yeah, they were They were in their early 20s. And um, they moved to Los Angeles and kind of built a life. And I was born in 1981, two years after. So really, um, we all kind of learned how to be American together. Mm. You know, I, I, I kind of was... Um, was growing up in this new culture at the same time that they were understanding what it felt like to move around in a world that they, you know, where they didn't really speak the language, where they had not had experience um, growing up. And so that was kind of a really specific and interesting way of growing up. Mm. Yeah. And Uh, what did they do to support the family when they got there? um, My dad went to technical college um, and he worked in various um, different, you know, factories and, and uh, you know, as a machinist and invented machines and, and um, innovated machinery. And um, then he ended up becoming an entrepreneur. And at some point in the early 90s was was one of the largest manufacturers of shoulder pads in Los Angeles. Oh, my God. Was, really? Was, which kind of was a badge of honor. I remember in third grade, I would take... Um, bags of shoulder pads to my teachers as gifts like the kind that you could velcro in oh wow yeah so it was like i think my mom probably bought was a client i'm, I'm sure i'm sure i'm sure not that he was the only person making that kind of of shoulder pad but sure yeah that um by the way this is really good food and i'm not saying that just because uh because you have to because i have to i'm actually saying this because it is really good so this is my first taste i have not tasted this. all right one. all right gabriel Oh my god. Yeah, that's really good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wild how I shouldn't talk with my mouth full, right? I know. Are we doing that? We didn't really we didn't <laughs> really talk about this before. <laughs> Should we talk with our mouths full? But you know what? It's my podcast, I can do what I want. The you Grand Tourist. Can. Mm. Ooh, this is incredible. Lauren, this is so delicious. Um, so this is actually a dish called Gormasabsi, which is a, a very traditional um Persian dish, which, you know, we kind of described, but, um, you know, some of my most um, clear early memories of childhood were of my grandmother cooking. Mm. And so your, your, your parents came here with their grandparents my or how parents was came that situation here, And like? then my, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents followed very closely after and okay. we lived next door to each other in a duplex. So oh, I grew amazing. up with my grandparents right next door, um, which was wonderful. And, you know, in order for anyone to make this dish, you really are going through bunches and bunches and bunches of parsley, so much parsley. And I remember she would clean the parsley and set the parsley out on the table to dry all day and would be chopping parsley for hours and hours and hours. So it was such a um, such a striking, vivid memory, the color of the parsley, the smell of the parsley in the house. So experiencing this um, again right now is very special and so delicious. Hmm. Was it a an easy childhood? Was it a happy childhood, would you say? It really was. Yeah. You know, I think something that a lot of immigrant parents are very aware of is is where they can, trying to be protective and providing things for their children that maybe they feel like they didn't have. Mm. You know, it's this idea of creating a new life in a new place. So yeah, I felt very um I felt very happy growing up and Certainly there were challenges, but I think those were really cultural. Like I was very aware of what it felt like to be a person that came from another place. 
So, you know, the, the, the understanding that I had of the world inside our house, which looked a certain way, you know, there were the sort of Persian carpets and the chandeliers and, and this really odd combination of like Italian modern and like French sort of Louis 16 furniture, which is like a very Persian combination of mm. things that come is together. It? Yeah. Specifically in Los Angeles. Um, you know, the life sort of looked a certain way, and I had a very intense connection to this place that my parents came from, but it was one step removed. It was through food, it was through music, it was through their longing and their nostalgia and their storytelling. Um, so in a lot of ways, I had to fill in a lot of the blanks myself. A lot of my connection to this place is is, is based in fantasy and required a certain kind of invention. Um for me to imagine what it felt like to fill in all of the details between the stories and between the images and between, you know, the rug that I knew that came from a particular place or the object that came from a particular place. So, you know, it brothers or sisters. I have a younger brother and a younger sibling, Nick. Um, I'm the oldest of three. um, And that was, what was that like? I don't know. It was, it was, I don't know what I have to say about being the oldest sibling. <laughs> well, you don't have the added. I mean, my mom was a first was an immigrant, so yeah. you don't have the pressure of being the only child. Right. You know, and I think especially for, you know, my dad was born here and, and his family has been here for a long time, but mm-hmm. my mom moved here when she was 16. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a different kind of pressure to be, to be the only child when you're, when you're thinking about, I don't know, just anything where your parents, strict when it came to school or studies or anything like that was there any hint of that of your future sort of design or fashion career that kind of could be hinted at when you were young you know i was a pretty creative kid i played the piano um i was always playing with fabric and drawing and Mm. making things and you know pretty crafty and um no my parents weren't particularly strict they were very supportive of of all of the ways that i was creative um my both my my mother plays the piano my dad plays the the drums and you know some of my fondest childhood memories were being at family gatherings where inevitably they would be entertainment after dinner and do you still play um i haven't played in a really long time i got really serious about it in in high school oh wow like i became obsessive yeah i almost went to to music conservatory as a as a pianist oh my gosh yeah that's amazing yeah i've never known that about you yeah it was i really i really dug into this idea take that business of home podcast (laughs) i really um i really became intoxicated with this idea of of virtuosity i think at like a certain age you know, in in your teens, for me, I won't speak broadly. Um, I was really inspired by this idea that you would sort of sacrifice for the sake of art mm. and that you would become singularly focused and singularly obsessed and just kind of climb the, to the pinnacle of what is possible. When you got, when you would, if you were just hanging out and just playing around on the piano, what would you play? I mean, it was always Chopin for me. I was like, I was oh, really? like, a, yeah, I was like a sad, a sad little boy. <laughs> like, my actually, the same third grade teacher that I took the um, the shoulder pads to, we had to do um, 
historical sort of like biographical book reports and i chose chopin of course and i okay. and we were meant to come dressed as the person that we were talking about so my oh little my third grade self was i mean i think i wore a cape and I, and I thought that was like the thing um yeah so so i was a you know i was a pianist for a while um and yeah gr- growing up the 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 difficulty was really in trying to make sense of what it felt like to be from two different places really. And to, to sort of find a way through two cultures. And certainly that became um, challenging when I came out when I was 13, Mm. because that, Oh my gosh, you came out and you were 13. I was 13 when I came out. How old are you now? Sorry. I am 41. You're 41. Okay. So to come out of 13 back then, I'm 45. So to come out at 13, that was, was a thing. It was a thing. I mean, it was sort of like it was. That's like Saturday school special after, you know, after school special on ABC. It was like RuPaul Generation 1. Well, yeah. And the real world. Pre-internet. It was like Pedro on the real world. Like oh, gosh, that was yeah. that was that was the thing. I mean, really being um, gay and certainly being a gay man, um, you know, f- f- in that moment was about trying to understand how to be comfortable with the idea that your desire could equal death, Mm. you know, and that, that was sort of a really constant thing on the mind all the time. And it, you know, it was one of the reasons that coming out was, was hard. Like I think my, certainly um, for my mom, it was really difficult when I came out and she had a hard time coming to terms with that. Are your parents religious or were they religious? No, they weren't religious. And 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 it's interesting. I, I didn't know this until later, but um my, you know, during my childhood, I was aware that my mother had an uncle who had passed away mm. and my, my grandmother was, was very close to her, her brother. And, you know, anytime I exhibited any kind of, of talent or creativity or, um, you know, th- things that were supported in a way that, that my family celebrated, I was compared to my, my mother's uncle. They were mm. like, oh my God, you're so much like Najid. Uh, <laughs> you're enjoying that, aren't you? I am. Listen, um, yeah, it's delicious. In Since my I'm family, doing all the talking, I can't eat as much. In my family, you eat that food. You, boom. you eat that food. I've, I've ate. Yeah, thank you, Lauren. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, yeah, I've, you know, eat your beef. I know. I know when someone's talking about me in the third person, like in all the different languages I would have here oh at God. the dining table. Mm. I know. I can understand in five languages phrases like why isn't he eating mm. what's wrong with him why is he in a bad mood oh and only one serving right that's only that. one you don't yeah. want more you don't yeah want more? i know i know how to recognize that in german <laughs> italian which we didn't we didn't we didn't really anticipate the how do eating. i interview you when you eat at well, the same eating, time yeah um <laughs> slight slight <laughs> slight, <laughs> slight production issue but you know what Let's make our parents proud and actually eat eat, eat some food. Absolutely. Um, this... So I'm going to go back to uncle for a second. Yeah. So, you know, I, I knew that my mother had an uncle that passed away who was very creative. And, you know, I was always compared to him when I would exhibit any sort of proclivity for anything that had to do with music or art. And, um, and it wasn't until... I don't know, maybe maybe ten years ago, that I learned that he ended his own life. Oh gosh! And that the assumption was that he was gay. 
Oh. And these things became clear to me, you know, as an adult, maybe 20 years, 20, 25 years after coming out. And that really put into context what my mother's trauma around my coming out was mm. in a way that I, I wished had been more clear to me at the time, because I think it would have enabled us to have a different kind of conversation. Um, but yeah, these, you know, it's, it's funny how, I don't know. It's funny how, how these generational traumas just kind of get passed on. And, mm. and at some point, did he, did he pass on before you came out or after you came out? I never met him. Yeah. He, but timeline wise, years before oh okay yeah years before i mean probably 20 years before mm. i mean i think he passed away before i was born mm. you know, i never met him um um but yeah it was really interesting to put an end to that that mystery of where her you know pain around the subject was coming from so you were you were knee deep in chopin mm -hmm. you were um sad little gay boy playing <laughs> chopin <laughs> Mm -hmm. And then um, at, at what point did you, you know, did you go to school? Did you go to design school? What did you, what, what was your, what was that So I like? ended up going to, um, staying in Los Angeles, going to UCLA. And I enrolled in a program there called World Arts and Cultures, which was a new program that was um, mostly a performance-based, like performance studies program. Um you know, I was a theater kid in in high school. I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I I knew that I wanted to have access to a broad range of of subjects. So, you know, I ended up taking documentary film production classes and uh, you know performance studies classes and queer theory classes. And what really stuck was when I found myself taking um, lighting design for theater, costume design for theater, scenic design for theater, and I had a really wonderful teacher named. Um, George Tomlinson, who, you know, was kind of one of those intergenerational mentors that you are lucky to happen upon in your youth. He was, you know, in his 70s and had been the set designer for Three's Company and, you know, had hmm. sort of had lived this life that I, um, as a young queer kid, uh, found to feel sort of like a portal to a, a different world and a different way of thinking about working. And, you know, I, I took a class with him and soon after he was like, look, I think we've done everything we can do for you in this department. You should go to the theater department and actually do a proper scenic and costume design, you know, mm. curriculum. So I did that. And, um, while I was there, you know, I, I was really most interested in in costume construction. I mean, building corsets and panniers and and all that kind of stuff. Sort of where architecture and and clothing meet. Um, and really loved costume and scenic design. And while I was um, while I was doing that, I was assisting a graduate student, and I was at a fabric store sourcing vintage buttons. And while I was sourcing these buttons. Um, a woman who, at the time, I was like, this is a really wonderfully eccentric person. Who is she? Approached me and asked if I was looking for work. And I, you know, gave her my number thinking nothing would come of it. And she called me and, and you know, I, I ended up working for her for eight years. Wow. And that was, that was how I found my way into fashion. And so what was that? What was your first... 
you worked for her for eight years. Mm-hmm. Was that the fashion part of the career? What was the that did you was go the, from there to somewhere else? I I went from I went from working with her to working for another um, women's wear designer named Raquel Allegra in Los Angeles. But those those first eight years were <laughs> um, really kind of. Uh, what I consider the fashion chapter of of the story, where I got to learn and experience and um, create in a way that really felt like a dream that I was that I was so fortunate to be a part of, and certainly learned so much about um, how to balance both the creative and tactical and operational needs of a business. I, I learned a lot about the kind of studio that I would ultimately want to ha- want to make for myself one day. Um, so that was, yeah, that was really incredible. And what, uh, ooh, speak of the devil. Oh, hi, Lauren. That's yeah. another course. She's back. She's back. Oh, wow, this is really pretty. <laughs> Tell us about this gorgeous... Come, come sit next to me. Okay. Well, this is an ode to all of the beautiful Russian women that influenced you, right? Mm. So we have components that are quintessential to the cuisine, so potatoes and cabbage, um, which needed a little bit of a... <laughs> a little lift? Yeah, a little yeah. lift, so yeah. to speak. So I took a French technique, which is a stuffed cabbage that has a beautiful presentation, and it's filled with my favorite, which is a vanilla bean whipped potato, which we use for A to date. And then there's a combination of um, some fennel and fennel fron on the interior, and then it's slow roasted, and it's topped with urfa chili, which is similar to like the lemony this that you get from sumac, Hmm, right? But it has a smoky chili flavor that isn't hot. It just gives you this heat that comes forward and I think really balances out the cabbage and gives it a punch and then you squeeze some fresh lemon right, on I'm top the lemon. yes and it's delish i cannot <laughs> right. thank you so much you, wow yum so cabbage russian ladies <laughs> go tell <laughs> I mean, what a what a perfect choice for the for the fashion chapter. I mean, one of the the things that was so magical about that experience was that you know over the course of eight years, um, we you. built a team of the most incredibly talented Russian pattern makers and seamstresses. Where was this? This, this was, was in, in LA. this was in Los Angeles. Yeah, and um, and you know essentially it was it was my job i i assisted with designing and i ran the sample room in the studio and and production and we made um we made one of a kind pieces so really every single piece was um an exploration and uh an innovation in pattern and an innovation in sewing and uh working with these women really felt like it opened a portal to me to a certain, again, this idea of virtuosity, to a certain kind of, of skill and virtuosity that felt that it, as though it came from, from a fantasy, from my youth, of this idea of making something the best that it can possibly be, mm. pushing something as far as it can possibly go, um, and really leading with the desire that an object should be seductive. It should be something that... that you feel as though you must have in your life because of what it tells you about who you are and how it was made. And how, and at what point during that time did you 
have this idea or did you have this idea? When did that switch to apparatus happen? I mean, nobody just sort of sits around and goes, I think I want to do lighting. I think I want to create a sconce. Right. Um, well, what what happened in the story was that Jeremy and I met in Los Angeles and um, and we moved in together. And, you know, while I had been in working in fashion for those those 10 years, I also was doing interior design projects on the side. Oh, yeah. It was, How did that happen? Um, it happened because my senior year of high school, I designed the set for guys and dolls okay which was at the time the most expensive set our our high school had ever produced um and as a result of that show one of the parents of someone who was in the show approached me and decided that they would like to ask me to design their house which kind of was another i don't know i've had these moments in my life how, where young were, how old were you at the I time i was 18 17 18 oh gosh yeah um who- yeah, like, what? Like, who what? takes that risk? Yeah, who exactly. would be like, yeah, I need to decorate my house, and there's this kid who's I will 18 tell years you, old, Irina Brodsky, who's okay. a lovely, lovely woman. Okay, um, who you know, it was it was an education. I mean, wow. part of me was just so excited about the idea of playing the part of interior designer, right? That like that really appealed to me, and of course, I was learning things. Wait, what as year I went. is this? This was in 1999, 2000, okay. 2001. All right, all right. Um, you know, and then she introduced me to a friend, and it was just like this kind of thing where I had this, this again, interesting, these really wonderful you Russian women. Were you like, was there a design fee plus plus percentage? Oh, man, I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> I mean, certainly I wasn't making money. I was just really excited to be, you wow. know, able to help? go into Jonathan Adler and sort of take something out on memo. Like oh, that. my gosh. <laughs> you know, it was yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. And how how big of a house was it? Mm. Um, man, this is delicious. It was really good. Um, it was. I don't know. It was like a three, maybe like a three thousand square feet. Wow. Yeah, it wasn't. It bigger wasn't, than my house. It wasn't tiny. <laughs> but anyways, I had I had been doing that, and you know, Jeremy and I moved in together, and before that, I had gone into really deep credit card debt decorating my own apartment. And, oh gosh. And um. How bad are we talking? Man, yeah, you know, manageable, but man- <laughs> managed to uh, managed to actually have Eldecor shoot it by you know one day I opened the masthead and I was like who am I going to send an email to and I and I saw Anita Sarcidi's name and guessed what her email address was going to be and sent her photos and she graciously responded oh, gosh. the next day and so then what year was that was it that it was published in uh, so here's the thing it actually ended up they shot it but it didn't get published <gasps> no. it was one of those like sort of never ending well stories at the time oh yeah um, so you know I and where I, was that where was that place by the way it was in LA it was in it was in the Miracle Mile. Um, and yeah, that really crushed me. So I, I did have this, you know, maybe reasonable idea that I was like, maybe good as an interior designer at that age, because the magazine had had responded. Um, and then they didn't publish it, which was crushing. But anyways, the point of the story is Jeremy and I moved in together. And, um, you know, part of the excitement of doing that was redesigning the apartment that I lived in. And in that process, I had the crazy idea that we should start making lights. And that's why really, lights? that's really how it started. Um, why lights? I, the, the real answer to that question is that um, we couldn't afford any of the things that I thought that we should have. Okay. And so it really became 
uh, sort of necessity being the mother of invention. And what I then really learned about lighting as a category is that it is uh, particularly magical because it is not um, really beholden to the same ideas of function as a lot of other things are that you that you could make for the home. You know, try to make a chair, for instance, or try mm-hmm. to make a sofa. Um, really, a, a light is about creating a bit of magic. It's it's really jewelry. So, you know, certainly I have I have ideas about what that should and shouldn't be, but it it's a form that you can explore and express things in a way that feels less about function. If that makes sense. It totally does. Yeah. It was your first product. Actually, the very first thing was the cloud. The cloud Describe to a, people that don't know what the cloud ah, is. The cloud. The cloud is, it's a chandelier that has a series of glass, frosted glass orbs that are all hanging from chain. So it's really about the contrast between the lightness of the glass and the armature, the brass armature that is essentially supporting that lightness. It's really contrast. Um, And it's still our number one selling piece, which is wild to say 10 years later. Oh, wow. Amazing. How many pieces have you created over this time at this point? Ooh, I think the catalog is now, I want to say 140, 150 pieces. Oh gosh. That are, that mostly are all in continuous production. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. so we we very rarely retire anything, and we're always adding new things. And you produce every? Where do you produce everything? We produce everything in New York in our factory in Red Hook. Oh wow! Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's it really here. it's really wonderful. Yeah, we yeah we're very much invested in, um, you know, the soul and energy that we can bring to making a thing and believe that that ultimately is 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 uh, an energy that is passed on to a person who brings and invites something into their house. Mm-hmm. So that idea of, you know, the hands and the brains that it takes to make a thing is something that we really celebrate. Speaking of love and connection, yeah. um, f- first loves. First loves. First loves. Good, good one. My first love was in high school, um, and he was two years younger than I was, and we were both in the theater program at my high school, and I think kind of both discovering our sexuality at the same time. And so there was a lot of that, that feeling of, of kind of danger and discovery that went to, you know, kind of hand in hand. Cause you're not mm. really sure. Does he like me? Is he gay? Does he like boys? Is he not? And then I remember the feeling of, um, of that question being answered and feeling fulfilled and, and the rush you get of um, a certain kind of possibility being open to you all of a sudden. Mm. And then, you know, as relationships are at that age, it, you know, burned, bright and quick and then i was heartbroken mm. oh my god that, mm. that heartbreak was hard before we return to gabriel a word from our sponsor and sex in the world of inspired interiors there are a few brands that have become synonymous with timeless american style as an interior editor for nearly 20 years one name comes up again and again and sex the brand opened its portland oregon factory 30 years ago realizing a vision to produce the finest handcrafted tile showcasing modern timeless design Ansac's latest achievement is the introduction of stone slabs, a key element to the design of any kitchen, bathroom counter, shower surround, or if you're lucky, home bar. 
With the company's incredible experience as a foundation, Anne Sachs is offering a curated selection of more than 60 varieties of marble, quartz, porcelain, and granite. And this summer, the company will open its third slab gallery in New York's Long Island City, after its first two in Dallas and Nashville. At these incredible one-stop destinations, you'll be able to work hand-in-hand with their design associates on everything service-related. For more information about any Ansacks tile or stone, or to find a showroom near you, visit www.ansacks.com. All right, time for the next course. Yeah, Lauren, tell us, brief- tell us briefly what, uh, what we're looking at here. These are all beautiful building blocks to make the flatbread of your dreams. So this is a a pan-fried flatbread. It's yeast-free and it's done with coconut yogurt and nigella and sesame seeds. And then there are shaved cucumbers with caracara orange juice, a smoked curry chili, and a bit of za'atar on top a pistachio gremolata, my version of one, with some pickled raisins and mustard seeds, and then a miso tahini with some smoked chili, and this is an herb compound butter with toasted coriander seeds on top. Oh my, God. Oh my gosh. So okay. excited about I'm those toasted excited. coriander seeds. This is right. a really a choose-your-own-adventure um, Love. All right. We are very excited. And so why, why, so Gabriel, why have we chosen this course? Why build your own adventure? Um, you know, it was interesting thinking about how to describe what we do as a studio. One is, is its own challenge, right? Because I think it's informed by certainly the fact that we make objects that we hope people want to incorporate into their own lives and their own stories. But it's bigger than that for me. It's really about a platform through which I get to explore different ways of making people feel something. And that can have a wide array of references and a wide array of stylistic approaches. And I think what remains constant is that apparatus is essentially the structure that I get to play in to tell different stories. And so we were trying to think about how to really interpret that as food and and what came to mind is is this idea of a lovely array of things that you can mix in ways that you wish to create the experience that you want and to tell a different story. Okay. Wow. And so when did you when you had started Apparatus? Yes. You had designed your own house and you had done some stuff for other people. Yep. How did you know it was going to how what was the big first hit? Like when did you think like, oh, this isn't just a giant waste of time um, and money? So the the very, very first hit was, um, you know, we had launched a very simple initial website and it was picked up by Remodelista. And immediately oh. I remember, you know, opening an email account that we had made just for show because that's what you need for a website. And all of a sudden <laughs> there were emails. I was like, wow. oh, wow. Okay. Whoa. We got 10 emails yesterday. What does that mean? Um and then uh, from there, it turned into our first order, which was for a restaurant in Shanghai. And well, that's pretty exotic. That, yeah, for, it, was, it was pretty you know, exotic. A little company. Yeah, it was great. How many people were you at the very beginning? It was just Jeremy and I. Wow. It was literally so you just, were making everything yourself? 
Yeah, I mean, I I was you know finishing metal in the kitchen sink and assembling things in the dining room and wow. packing boxes and you know kind of figuring out how to. This was pre Uber, figuring out how to like get something to the FedEx to to ship it. Um, yeah, really, it really was uh, building something from nothing. Um, and then we did ICFF in 2012, and from there, which is a design fair here in New York. Thank you. Yes, a design fair in New York, and from there. Uh, what was incredible was to see the work immediately responded to by an incredible community of interior designers um, in New York. And that's really what what started the momentum, which has um, you know, grown steadily now for 10 years. Hmm. And when you got started, what did you say? What did you and Jeremy, like, what did you say to yourselves? Like, oh, this, this new company is going to be X, Y, and Z. Like, what were you trying to set out? to do and to accomplish because today you have this very distinct vision, distinct product offering, distinct culture and communication style and, Mm -hmm. and sort of reputation. Mm -hmm. Um, Like what were your aspirations when you were in the very beginning and getting started? Great question. Um, You know, I think the initial aspiration was, really quite simple to make something beautiful that that was of a, p- a specific time um that did what i felt was missing in a lot of the design around me that i was looking at which was to create objects that had a sense of the future of the future in their form but also really celebrated the human hand and a sense of the past and the sense of time um, and that very much felt like I, you know, it wasn't a thing that I was seeing. And so the initial, really the initial goal was to make things that people loved because of that combination of things. And then what became clear to me over the years creatively was that ultimately, you know, especially because of the way I grew up where objects were essentially carriers of meaning from a different place was understanding that I actually have the ability to tell stories and and to make people feel something Hmm. in relation to objects and space. And so, you know, what now leads my interest creatively is how to tell the big story and what is the, what is the emotional vibration of this thing? Hmm. And that's where everything else comes from. And certainly I'm as invested in, you know, the 16th of an inch that I think that a certain component needs to be changed in order to make it the most beautiful part of a chandelier Mm. as I am in the large story that we're telling. Um, But it really starts from imagining the the world and understanding that the objects we make have the ability to communicate meaning. And how long were you doing lighting before furniture started to enter into the into the mix. I remember there being sort of like limited edition kind of things before it kind of became. Yeah, we, we started on. making, I mean, really the approach to furniture was completely in keeping with, with what I'm describing as process, which was to say, okay, well, here are a number of things that we make that produce light. And in order for us to experience them fully, we need to also imagine the other things in the context of this light. So what is the table? What is the chair? What is the? What are the objects that go on the table? It's really just a, a, about filling out the vision, ultimately. Um, 
which is exactly the way I see the studio growing. You know, I think um, to me, knowing that there is a universal approach that is not tied to being expressed in a specific category really allows me to imagine sort of limitless possibility for what apparatus is and can be. Mm. So when you're talking to clients around the world, like let's say a designer from Milan, you know, who uses, you know, who uses apparatus in their projects. um, Do you think that they see you as like a uniquely American studio or what kind of box do they tend to put you in? Or is that kind of is that is that just sort of way of thinking kind of over and done with? I you know I, I I can't speak to you know that way of thinking broadly, but I think one of the things that I find um, maybe the most delightful actually is that the references really change depending on who you talk to, and people generally seem to find a way to see themselves and their own references in the work. And I think that for me um, is a real validation of of the approach, which is to create something that feels familiar enough that you're invited into it, but really starts to kind of make you go, wait a second, that's not what I thought it was when you when you get close. And so I speak to people, Middle Eastern people who see Middle Eastern references. I speak to Italian people who see Italian references. I mean, it's really wonderful to to feel like I have a, a specific enough perspective that I that I know what I want to make, but that also the things we make are tools that people can project their own stories onto. I think that feels really wonderful. All right. We are eating trifle for dessert because you are having your next major moment this spring um, with a new showroom in London in Mayfair. Yeah, we're opening our, our this is the big time gallery in London. Um, and this is the big time. <laughs> yeah, I guess this is the big time. Yeah, it's it's been a really exciting thing to dream about, you know, for and, and certainly for the past five years, we've been dreaming about about opening in London. And here we are um, on a street that which street? Mayfair. We're in Mayfair on Mount Street. On Mount Street. Yeah. And so we're kind of right in the middle of what feels like a certain kind of luxury and a certain kind of international luxury there. Um, and, you know, certainly approaching this project in London has been creatively really re- rewarding and somewhat complex emotionally because you know certainly um the united kingdom and and london specifically are are emblematic of a certain part of the world that has shaped other parts of the world in mm. certain ways and certainly yeah. my family has been um you know the lives of, of people that i know and love and and my life i'm in the united states because of you know because of because of empire because of mm. of the ways that certain people um, shape the the lives and futures of other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So going to London has been about finding the joy and excitement in the possibility of what that kind of place can be and the mm-hmm. people that it attracts and what it becomes. And also kind of making peace with, um, you know, a certain complexity and, and um, discomfort around a certain part of that history. So... 
it's it's been really an interesting personal journey because you know from a from a creative and aesthetic point of view um you know always i approach the the galleries as a means through which we absorb certain references that feel geographically resonant and and local and appropriate and you know it's my job and the job of of our incredible team to take those references and push them through an apparatus lens that again you know serves something that feels familiar but that um makes you see things in a different way so we're referencing a lot of really beautiful classical architecture and materials and really deconstructing those elements and kind of putting them back together um so that feels you know, like what apparatus does in terms of creating a, a gallery space in in a new location. The thing that's been really interesting for me was was also feeling like I needed to show up as who I am, which is a queer Middle Eastern person on that street, which in a way represents a certain kind of the way that certain places in the world shape other places in the world. Mm. So it, it's been about understanding how to incorporate a sense of my own history and my own family. And mm. and um, we've been looking through archival photography and, and you know, references for portraiture. And I'm, I'm really invested in kind of bringing my family with me. I, you're going to have, I, I remember we, you had mentioned once that you might have, you know, portraits of your family, like, in the space yeah, you're still going to do that we're 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 working through what that what that's going to look and feel like but yeah it feels really important to me specifically to bring my grandmother with me and to have her in the space really as a as a um as a sense of protection mm. there and 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 a sense of arrival really and how many uh, this is on the street on the street, street, level. Yeah, street level, and you'll be showing lighting, but also uh, we'll showing, showing everything. Everything that we make, and a lot of things that we make and don't sell. I mean, it's really you know, essentially, <laughs> our world is so much about we make everything, and some of those things are things that we share with our clients. And have you had like a lot of requests, like a lot of clients from the UK, that that's what sort of spurred you to oh, pick absolutely. this location? Yeah, it's a really important market for us. I mean, essentially, we right, we follow the audience. Um, and so, yes, we know that already that we have a wonderful audience in, in the UK. And how many showrooms do you have now around the world? Once you open London, how many will we be at? Uh, we will have three galleries. We call them galleries. And this will be our third. We, we did operate um, a gallery in Milan for a number of years, which we've just recently closed. Um, so we'll be Los Angeles, New York and London with you know a long list of dream locations to come next where do you think where would you like apparatus to go next because you've kind of you've touched upon lining you've touched upon furniture Mm -hmm. amazing locations Mm -hmm. um I think there's a lot of different ways in which still even in the design world that you can kind of take the brand so like is there absolutely um you know, uh, again, in keeping with with the way I think about making things, which is about them belonging to a world, I think the opportunity there is to create more of that world. Mm. So it's certainly decorative accessories, personal accessories. I miss making clothes. I don't miss fashion, but I miss making clothes. Um, you know, the way I think about when I get up in the morning, what are all of the things that I need to populate my story? 
in my experience? What is the thing I'm putting on my body? What is the thing I'm carrying? What does the doorknob feel like? What is the glass I'm drinking out of? What are the sheets? Uh, yeah, I mean, we we do make decorative. We certainly experiment with 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 hardware in the studio. But yes, for sure. So those things are um, are you know fairly clear. I think the layer that I'm also really excited about is what do apparatus experiences feel like? I absolutely want to open a nightclub at some point in my life. I oh, want, you really do? I, oh, without question. Um, like, I, all right, where? Let's just paint like a total fantasy picture. Oh, good, good. Is good. it in New York? It is in New York. Okay. What's the first nightclub you ever went to in New York? Um, the first nightclub I ever went to in New York it must have been it must have been like Cielo or something. All right, where's that? It like in in meatpacking. Oh, okay. Yeah, it must have been like not particularly what year was this? Oh, oh, 2010? Oh, 11? Okay. All right. Terribly yeah. long. I mean, I haven't been here that long. That's true. Um Yeah, um but yes, the fantasy of the nightclub is not that. It's a place that I want to go to have a light dinner and smoke on the patio and be dressed and listen to someone perform something beautiful and then also go downstairs and dance. Okay, so it's part dance club, part sort of like Copacabana. Yeah, it's that's the fantasy of the nightclub. So it's restaurant. It is restaurant. Yeah, I want to be able to order food. I want to be able to have a drink. I want to be able to flirt and get into trouble and dance and get lost in a dark corner. Oh, wow. Um, and also order a steak free, you know? Oh wow! Yeah, so that's a very retro uh, thing to ask for. It is a very retro thing, and in New York, it's probably I can just hear somebody listening to this from the New York food and beverage scene, just thinking like this kid's out of his mind. There's no way. However, if anyone could pull something like that off, it would be you. I'm 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 fairly good at um, thinking of things that feel crazy and enlisting the people and you know the will to to make it happen so we'll see if that happens but it's definitely a fantasy what would the music be like mm, i mean it would be different all the time i think i would want to hear a jazz singer at dinner and i think i would want to hear house music downstairs okay and i'd want to have some jazz fusion i'd want to have some disco i'd want you know it'd be like all the all the things that make you uh, feel like you're lounging and flirting and kind of living life the way you're supposed to. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> what about a hotel? Absolutely. What about an apparatus hotel? Absolutely. I kind of feel like that's a, that's a, that's easy. It's a, <laughs> absolutely easy. Already done. Yes. What about the apparatus hotel? But without question. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Before we return to Gabriel, a word from our sponsor, Ford Street Studio. Ford Street Studio sumptuous carpets are expertly hand knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. One of Ford Street Studio's luxurious offerings is the brand's Thai silk collection of rugs and tapestries. It's a rare and exclusive production that involves hand-reeled silk spun into thick cord or soft yarns to create original designs by founding creative directors Janice Provisor and Brad Davis. These artistic designs are then produced by a team of women in a remote village in northern Thailand. 
where they do everything from grow and harvest the silk, prepare the yarn, string the looms, to weaving the carpets. The high-gloss effect of Thai silk makes it perfect for flat-woven creations that are ribbed, cable-knit, or brocaded, or for a more traditional cut-pile carpet, or even an exotic fur-like shag. And just like all offerings from Fort Street Studio, the Thai silk collection can be customized to your needs in color and shape. To create your own heavenly soft Thai silk rug, visit FordStreetStudio.com. Let's bring up a slightly more serious topic. When we talk about belonging, we talk about London. I think lately, you know, especially with everything going on in Iran, and obviously you're you know, recently I saw, I saw you were selling a particular object where a portion of the proceeds mm-hmm. would go towards, you know, supporting some of the protests there. What is, how are you feeling in this strange time that we're in, kind of out of the pandemic, mm-hmm. kind of out of a Trump period, but not really, right. um, who yeah. knows for how long, yeah, exactly. um, everything, you know, protests going on all over the world, war in Europe, uh, mm-hmm. and so on. Yeah. Um, in terms of like, you, you know, because you bring up your identity and how are you feeling at this moment? Because you, I know it's a part of, part of your, what you project on social media. Mm. Now you're bringing it a little bit into your business. We're talking about London. Yeah. Um, in this moment in your life, now that you've, you're kind of looking back, you've had this amazing brand now for 10 years. You've had arguably like what anyone would say is an amazing career and you're still quite young very kind. Thank and you. you've got another probably 30 40 years left uh i hope so in you yeah. before uh you retire 30 probably <laughs> um <laughs> um how are you feeling what are you, how are you feeling about life <clears throat> oh wow Sometimes you've brought up you brought going, up the word. We're yeah, going there. Going we haven't the even got. We yeah. haven't really gone for the. This is where it starts is, to get good. This is where it starts to get good. How are you feeling right now? Um, I'm feeling. I'm feeling. Um, I'm feeling like I'm in a in a moment of really major transition in my life. Um, you know, the last ten years um, have been about building this thing. And um, certainly have involved um, a certain kind of approach to making sure that this baby is going to be strong enough to stand on its own. And I think. What does that mean? um, You know, I think in the first years of a business, you're really like, is is this going to make it? Like, is there a point at which something's going to happen that's going to make this fantasy no longer a reality? Mm. And so you're kind of constantly searching for things that make you feel like you're on the right path or that you, you know, Mm. you asked earlier, like, what was the moment when you knew you made it? You're looking for those moments to sort of reflect back to you what you hope is true, which is that what you're doing is important and worthy and will, will last. And, you know, I, 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 I do feel that that is the case at this point after 10 years and, and that, the question really is now, why do you do what you do? And and what does it feed in you? And what is the responsibility that you have to the people who help you do that and to the people who you are trying to tell stories to? And so this this moment is is, you know, they're they're big life questions. And what I keep coming back to is that I, you know, continue to have this this 
intense belief that the objects that we make are products of our human experience. And it is a thing that we have done as humans for time immemorial, which is to to shape the world around us because it's kind of the only way we know how to make sense of anything. Mm -hmm. And so even while, you know, the questions of, of, you know, why make another thing are, are always present in, in my mind. Um, I think what I keep coming back to is, is because it's the way that I know how to make sense of the world around me. It's the way that I know how to build a, safe kind of sandbox to play in and to invite other people to join me in. Mm. And, you know, in, in a time that feels increasingly chaotic and dark and, um, you know, like things are maybe not headed <laughs> in, in, in a direction that we're also excited about, um, where I find comfort is in the belief that I can continue to build a fantasy that I'm excited about and that I can invite people into that fantasy. And if I can dream that thing and make it come to life, that is a process that can be magnified outside of the work that I do and can you know, potentially inspire other people to do that kind of work and potentially move us all in a direction of, of imagination and possibility. Mm. And, you know, I'd certainly... I don't imagine that the work I'm doing or apparatus is going to change the world, but I do think that leading with the intention of continuing to tap into that human impulse to create beauty um, in the most simple, oversimplified sense of this conversation is the antidote to the darkness. And that, you know, I, I just have to keep connecting with that feeling. Are you having a midlife crisis? Uh, it, no, it doesn't feel like a crisis. It feels like clarity. Hmm. Yeah, no, it doesn't feel like crisis at all. It feels like actually coming closer to an understanding of who I am and why I do what I do. Yeah, it actually doesn't feel like a crisis at all. It feels kind of like a homecoming. Hmm. Midlife epiphany. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, do you see that changing anything in apparatus? Good question. I don't think so. I think I think what it changes is the way in which I place that work in the context of my own life and what it means to me personally. I'm very clear about what apparatus is and about what it needs to continue to be what it is and the amazing talented people who show up every day and and give of their brain and their history and their their you know all of that. I'm so so grateful for that. I can't do what I do without them. And also I know that as the studio evolves my role inevitably changes and evolves alongside all of those people. So it's, you know, it's like a constantly shifting recipe. And, and that does allow for me to find the parts of the process that I find most gratifying and nourishing and to build the team around me that are people who are the best at what they do and who allow me to be the best at what I do. And, you know, when you're designing your, let's say your recent furniture collection, um, which was like a big, launch for you and you and you had um you created this beautiful film with it which i thought was really fantastic yes, kind of with our lady muse deborah shaw it was a dream to work with yes which was kind of uh i know that when it came out a lot of people were like you know who could do that like who could you know who could really like pull that off i mean you could imagine like any other company trying to do something what you did which was essentially a a slow short film, right? With a beautiful woman walking through a set that you built in, in a 
giant freestanding set in the middle of a huge <laughs> studio. Yeah. Storytelling. Ultimately. It's like uh, if had you know had you had brought she's kind of like an Eartha Kit kind of a young Eartha well, Kit. Well, let's bring this back to Dita Blair. She's actually many of our references for that character were Dita Blair. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, future or perhaps past guest yeah. Dita Blair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, depending on how I order the episodes. Um, yeah. No. You know. Incredibly. Um, not approached from a way that a furniture design, a furniture brand, as we would think today, even a luxurious one. Sure. You know, is it fair to say that you still today are approaching things with apparatus from like a fashion oh, lens? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, you know, one of the most important things that I learned in fashion was was the idea again of of making objects that people desire and understanding that part of that creating that desire is is in the story and you know it's certainly an object needs to stand on its own and be a thing that is impeccable and of a quality that you believe in that you trust um but really it's the stories that we tell around objects that attach us to them. And I think that's what fashion does brilliantly. Mm. And I think that is one of the things that, that we um, really hope to do. And, and we employ a lot of the same tools of, you know, telling you a story about a chair or about a light fixture through the lens of the woman who is experiencing this world. Mm. Um, you're so good with, creating experience whether it's experience a product or a party or a video about a coffee table <laughs> whatever yeah. it is i'm curious what is the most amazing performance you've ever just attended or Ooh. saw was it like a play or a great or question. A show or great question great question great question it sticks out in your mind is like the ultimate experience. So performative I, experience. I recently, I'm going back to the sort of theme of virtuosity again. Recently saw Yuja Wang perform. Who's that? A Yuja Wang is an incredible concert pianist who, I mean, is polarizing for a lot of reasons, but um, I would argue is probably the most important living pianist currently. Oh. And what's incredible about her is that her skill and technique is astounding but she's also just fucking cool like she'll wear like sunglasses on stage and wear like a four-way stretch like iridescent mermaid gown it's like mm. that vibe um and i saw her perform a list piano concerto at alice tully last year and i have to say there was something about being in that room and watching someone play on the edge of what is possible. Like really that's what I feel when she plays that she what is. What does that mean in, in terms of a piano? That you're not quite sure if she's going to make it through. Like it huh. is that on the edge huh. and, and it's exhilarating. And then she does. And there's a certain confidence that you have in the fact that she will, but there's a sense of danger in it um, that I'm obsessed with. I'm I'm really, really obsessed mm. with. And I, I think any opportunity that I can have to watch someone perform in a way that makes it clear that they have mastered a technical skill, but ultimately that technical skill is only in service of what they are trying to communicate 
from an emotional resonance perspective, those are those are the experiences to me that are that really again, it's like that is what it means to be human. And it's something that I aspire to do in my life and in the work that I create. And, you know, talking about the evolution of apparatus, I mean, now that we've been now that we're into the um you know, dessert, uh, Amaro, <laughs> the after dinner, uh, the, the after the dinner, Amaro. Amaro. Um, obviously parties have been mm. the sort of like in here in New York, we have our design week in May, our design weeks, uh, the, the most fabulous design weeks for the past 10, the most fabulous events during these design weeks of the past decade have all been sort of your party. That's sweet. Thank you. And, um, oh, come on, you know it. <laughs> Uh, just, I mean, I can't say it myself. Oh, God, so <laughs> annoying, Gabriel. Um, no, I mean, I can't tell you how many people are like, how did you get into it? So how do I get an invite? Or how blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. kind of made a thing out of, out of, um, and it kind of hit people like it was a breath of fresh air because yeah. um, nobody knew. You guys seem to have come out of nowhere when yeah. it first kind of hit, took off. Yeah. And, I remember go, you know, usually when you when I go into any kind of design week thing, yeah, right in New York for yeah. a long time since, yeah. you know, especially during those years, right, um, that 2010, 2019, let's say, yeah. um, I would know everybody there, and then I would sure. go to an apparatus party, and I would know some people, yeah. The cooler part of the people that I knew, but eighty percent of the people I would be like, <laughs> you "Who the hell who are these people? Who yeah. are all of these people?" Yeah. And that was actually really refreshing. Yeah, um, because the people that I did know would look at me. I remember the first event you did at a show at your showroom in New York when it opened. Yeah, someone looked at me from across the room and was just like, "What the, what the hell is going on? Oh, who are all these people?" That's fun. Yeah, I like kind that. of like, "Wow, what is this? How did you get here? How did we get here? And how did they get here?" I love that. Um. And the, can you maybe quickly bring us through like yeah. what makes one of these big parties like you've done how many big giant events? At this I point? mean, we've done we've done probably five or six at that kind of scale where you feel like you're in a room where you don't know everybody and it's about discovery, right? And those are my favorite. Um, and the the parties are really like the most pure expression of the ethos, which is you know an understanding that again all of the things that we make are in service of this human drama. Like they are the set onto which this play has to happen. And if the play doesn't happen, what's the point of the set? Mm. So it's really, how do we animate the world? How do we imagine what it's gonna feel like, the sort of collective moment of joy and wonder and discovery? And how do we deliver that both to people that we wanna say thank you to, our community, and to people who we just wanna invite to play in the sandbox. And I think that's where the chemistry gets really interesting is where you're in a room and you know maybe 30% of the people and another 30% of the people you're like, I really wanna know you. And the rest of them, you're just like, what is going on? I think that is actually the recipe for a really, really beautiful night where you are just aware that you are in the sea of humanity. And it is just so beautiful to have all these people around you. And most recently you had, uh, you created a jazz club. We did, yeah. We created um, a jazz club for three nights in our in our gallery, which was um, which was an extension of of the themes of Act Four, which were all um, inspired by sort of nineteen sixties cultural touch points and jazz. You know, was at the center of a lot of the inspiration for for the collection. Um, yeah, so we created this pop up jazz club for three nights, 
and we had the wonderful Baylor Project um, perform. I don't know when this is airing, but they're currently nominated for a Grammy. I guess we will know by the time right, this episode airs. Good luck. If they will have won or not. But, you know, the, the result of creating that event where we invited people to step into, you know, a different time and having the result of that be this artifact of a record is again a high it's a highlight it's one of those moments where what i hope to do which is to create you know things that are carriers of meaning um really interacts with the idea of what it means to be human to me Hmm. i mean i think for people that don't know it's kind of like I would say is like a your events are sometimes like a Halston documentary <laughs> uh, meet like a really great fashion party. Yeah. Or, you know, with a very slight tinge of um, industry something. Sure. But like if I had brought in a stranger off the street and said like, what, what industry is this? Yeah. I don't think anybody would really be able to tell me, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. I think the point of those events is actually not to try to sell you anything. Really what, what my aim is, is that you feel that you are transported and it's an intoxicating feeling and you leave wanting to know more. Yeah. No, I think I, I mean, I tell people in the industry all the time is I think there was like a post recession pre pandemic, vibe yeah where everything was like money 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 Turned money up. money yeah like everything was like, was like make more money 18 19 those were the years which yeah. just like make more money yeah. make it about business yeah. nothing else matters anymore mm-hmm. everything that used to be part of the design doesn't really matter and that was all dumb right. right and you just came along and said let's just have a really banging party guys will dress up in leather there will be a jazz bar bizarre food on beautiful trays that are so perfect looking no one wants to touch them yeah um outdoor space indoor space yeah you it's know about discovery yeah. it's about reconnecting with with the feeling of playing you know and having the pleasure of being able to provide that for people and to invite that it's really ultimately about connection it's just about connection um now that dessert uh has come to a close mm-hmm. and we've had our little amaro uh, point in the evening and lauren has now joined us from the kitchen mm-hmm. i just want to raise a glass oh. a great little toast yes. to my gracious host uh gabriel to lauren and and the incredible meal that we just had and here's to london and to apparatus in the many years to come and thank you so much for having me and this was a total trip and I'm so excited that we did it. <laughs> Thank you Cheers. so much for being Now we have here. to what go clink. Clink. Oh. <laughs> Thank you to Gabriel Hendafar, Marlene Capron, Lauren Gary, Drew Damon, and everyone at Apparatus for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more and sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next season. All right, here, here's a true story. Maybe we can stick this at the end. Mm. I knew, um, I probably look back and now think like, oh, yeah, of course I was really gay. <laughs> when I was a kid, I remember I was at one of those like, you know, uh, day camps, summer day camps. My parents would always make me go to camp in some way. Yeah. So, 
I would go to this, went to this day camp and I remember sitting around like a circle, mm-hmm. like a campfire circle, but not without probably a campfire. Yeah. And we're all going to go around. What's your favorite color? Yeah. Someone was like red and someone was like blue. Someone was like purple. And then it was like, Dan, what's your favorite color? Oh, here we go. And I paused and I was like, mm, off white. Oh. <laughs> What seven-year-old says off-white? Uh, off-white. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Is it still your favorite color? Uh, no, but... 